0: Uh, We started the show with this week's unpopular opinion. I talked about why um, testosterone-boosting herbs and supplements uh, are bunk and generally don't work in terms of creating a clinically meaningful improvement in testosterone. I talked about Dr. Andrew Huberman's recommendation of Tongkat Ali and Fagodia Agresta and how there's very few, uh, if if any, human studies that show that it works in terms of increasing testosterone may have possible toxic effects and is ill-advised and not recommended uh, as a testosterone-boosting Uh, effect. We also answered some great questions today, um, you know, about the dark triad as I talked about. Um, We talked about dating sex workers um, and uh, we talked about cold therapy uh, as also an an unsubstantiated or non-evidence-based means of improving testosterone, but how there's other things that you can do just in terms of maintaining testicular temperature uh, that may at least prevent damage from happening. We also talked uh, finally about channeling uh, libido and channeling narcissism in ways that are positive, pro-social and productive, um, and I think is the hallmark of a mature man is taking you know your energy, uh, your tendencies, your superpowers, if you will, and channeling it in a way that's good for you, good for your significant other, good for your family, and good for your community. Um, you know, I think it's really important, as uh, Freud's protege Jung said, You have to embrace the shadow. All of us have a dark side. None of us are perfect, myself included. I openly always talk about that. I'm a work in progress myself, but I think it's important to take those, those, that darkness within and work on it. Uh, you know, do the hard work, uh, go in the kitchen, so to speak, as Robert Bly said, do the hard work of therapy, improve on yourself. Um, and so that you can come into the light and channel that in a way that's healthier. Hey everyone, welcome to Maximus' Colin radio show, no, episode 32. Super excited to be with you here this week. Uh, I have a lot of interesting questions and topics of discussion. So for those of you who are joining us for the first time, with the Colin radio show, you can call in and ask any questions related to optimizing your health, whether in mind, body, masculinity, or relationships. Uh, thanks to everyone who's joining us on Discord, Mafio LC, Michael, Nabs, Shane, Thanks for joining us. We have uh, Twitter Spaces going, Clubhouse, Instagram, and TikTok uh, and YouTube Live. So feel free to type uh, uh, any questions that you have um, or obviously raise your hand. We always love a user submitted questions or if you're willing to talk through it, uh, that's even better. We start out um, every week's show with a unpopular opinion of the week. Uh, So uh, this week's opinion is actually about um, testosterone-boosting herbs and supplements. And the unpopular opinion is that testosterone-boosting herbs and supplements are worthless. Um, And the reason that I'm talking about it this week is a lot of you might have seen the podcast episode of Dr. Uh, Andrew Huberman, uh, who was on the Joe Rogan podcast. I believe it's probably like the number one podcast episode in the country right now. Uh, His podcast blown up. Uh, He's obviously doing a lot of self-promotion on uh, Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, etc. He's a professor at Stanford. has very like legitimate uh, credentials. And I've I've listened to a couple of his stuff, um, but I think the hormone stuff is actually inaccurate. And I'm going to talk about why. So if you listen to him on the Joe Rogan podcast, so he talked first of all about testosterone replacement therapy or TRT. And uh, to his credit, you know, he said a lot of guys in their 20s and 30s are going on TRT. And quite frankly, it's unnecessary. He talked about how he's in his 40s. He's not on TRT. And you can do a lot of other things besides TRT to optimize your hormones. So I'm glad he put that message out there in terms of, you know, the the safety profile of TRT. And quite frankly, that it's unnecessary. Also, obviously, if you're a professional athlete, you can't be on TRT. So uh, first and foremost, so the alternative, unfortunately, That he posited. He did um, acknowledge the importance of health behaviors, fixing your sleep, your diet, all that good stuff, which I agree is the foundation. But he specifically mentioned two herbs um, as being testosterone boosting. Um, So the first is uh, Tongkat Ali um, that he mentioned. Um, And uh, Tongkat Ali, uh, the scientific name is Uricoma longifolia. It's also known as Malaysian ginseng or longjack. Um, and he described it as an SHBG inhibitor. And if you remember, testosterone binds to uh, SHBG, or sex hormone binding globulin and albumin, um, which uh, uh, lowers the amount of free testosterone. So if you have an SHBG inhibitor, uh, it can increase the amount of of, uh, total testosterone, especially free testosterone. So he claimed that taking this herb can... Increased testosterone, probably he's referring to total testosterone, by uh, 100 to 200 nanograms per uh, deciliter. Um, And I'm actually very skeptical, quite frankly, um, of this. So first of all, a lot of the studies that he cites, and I listened to his whole podcast episode um, about hormone optimization. And I think the beginning of it was good in terms of like, you know, fixing your sleep. The herbal stuff was pretty whack, to be honest with you, in terms of a lot of these studies are just done in mice and rodents and the unfortunate thing is these just these studies don't translate very well to humans i can i can tell you if you've been in the actual field of hormone optimization you follow the literature uh there's always some new herb or new new thing that's popping up that doubles testosterone triples testosterone in mice and then whenever some supplement company takes it turns it into a supplement for human use uh, it never pans out the way that it's supposed to. I just don't think the 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 uh, mice uh, as endocrine systems really are an accurate model for the human endocrine system, and all the the results that you see when you know these like rats' uh, testicles uh, double in volume, it just doesn't translate to humans very well. So uh, first of all. Uh, there, there are very few studies. Um, uh, actually, uh, before February of 2021, I don't think I saw a single human study that was done on tongkat ali. So uh, there's just not a lot of convincing evidence on it. I did find one study that was actually published earlier this year in Andrologia. Now it was sponsored by a pharmaceutical company called hp ingredients and so whenever i see uh, unfortunately a study that's sponsored by a a supplement company you have to be a little skeptical it's not saying that it's necessarily made up but you have to have it a little little more scrutiny uh, in terms of it because you have to make sure that the research was done properly because they're obviously their incentive is to show that it works because they're selling the long jack ali supplement surprisingly like why else why else are they sponsoring this study right Uh, Now, they did this in healthy young males, which I liked, um, and it was a double-blind placebo-controlled study, which is the proper way to do it. Uh, They gave them, I think, 600 milligrams of tongkat aliping. They found that total testosterone increased by 15%, and free testosterone increased by 34%. So let's just assume this is accurate. If that's the case, these results are not very impressive. A 15% increase in total testosterone is just the same as uh, the increase in, in total testosterone by Ashkawanda, which is at 14.7%, or basically you can round up to 15%. Free testosterone, a little bit better at 34%. But I always tell people, you're just not going to see a, a meaningful, it's not a clinically meaningful improvement. It's statistically significant, but it's not clinically meaningful in that you're really going to feel or notice any difference Uh, in terms of 15 to even 34% increase. As a frame of reference, if you sleep one extra hour a night um, from anywhere between four to eight hours, you're going to get about a 10 to 15% increase. So it's not that it's insignificant, but quite frankly, instead of taking tongkat ali or some random herb, you should just get an extra hour of sleep because that will definitively do it. And the mood boosting effects and energy effects of an extra hour of sleep are clear and definitive. You're definitely going to feel that. Um, the other thing is this study was done in two for over the course of two weeks uh so the interesting thing is they didn't find uh that it increased any other key things first of all it didn't uh affect shbg as dr Huberman claimed so his proposed mechanism of action may not actually be the mechanism of action so we don't really understand how it works which makes me further skeptical it's not that it doesn't work but when you it's not clear what the mechanism of action is uh, you, you don't really understand its effects and the potential downsides of it. Versus if it, um, you know, inhibits SHBG. Uh, another possibility, Derek, from more plates, more dates. Uh, you know, said that per- perhaps it's an estrogen receptor antagonist. Maybe it'd be functioning as an aromatase inhibitor. We know the effects of those classes of drugs, and so you can better characterize what it's likely to do and the, the likely side effects. But we have no idea what the heck Tonkat LD is doing. Didn't change SHBG. Didn't change LH. Didn't change FSH. So it's not really working through the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal or what's called the HPG axis, right? Most of the uh, effective um, androgenic or anabolic drugs or supplements do work through the HPG axis, uh, either by suppressing it, which is what TRT does, or with clometer and Clomiphene acting as a serum and stimulating natural production of the HPG axis. The fact that this is not affecting the HPG axis uh, suggests there's some other possible mechanism of action and also makes me further skeptical that it's actually doing something else. It may be activating the HPA axis, uh, and that's kind of unusual, and who knows if that's a good thing or not. So uh, I am. I think net-net, the research literature does not support the use of Tongkat Ali as a testosterone booster. Uh, all the studies are done in rats and rodents, and the one study that's done in humans is biased and that it's done by a pharmaceutical company. It only studied it for two weeks, And anyway, the increases are not very impressive. So, but one final thing too, Tongkat Ali has literally been around forever. You can buy it online on Amazon uh, for over a decade. The bodybuilding community is obsessed with testosterone. If it had worked, every single uh, bodybuilder would be on it. And nobody I know, quite frankly, takes it, uh, even though it's been around, a lot of people have tried it. You might get some slight libido benefits. Um, there's a lot of herbs that that may or may not increase libido, but libido is not the same exactly as testosterone. Testosterone increases libido, but libido increasing supplements or herbs do not necessarily increase testosterone. That's a it's not a it's a bi, not a bidirectional thing. So um, I have heard some some potential effects on libido. Even then, it's really mild. But I am not impressed with the testosterone uh, boosting effects, and I do not think the research. suggests that it is an effective testosterone boosting supplement. So let's talk about the second supplement Dr. Huberman Huberman, um, uh, suggested, which is Fedogia agrestis. It's a Nigerian shrub. This is really rare. Um, You, uh, it's not commonly. It doesn't have a long history of use like tongkat ali. It's not readily available. In fact, when Dr. Huberman Mentioned it on the podcast because I think he has credibility, or at least did have credibility, uh, at least in the hormone space. Um, And you know, Joe Rogan is obviously a big audience. It literally sold out everywhere online. Like if you if you Google Fadogia agrestis, uh, everywhere it's sold out. Um, There wasn't a lot of it, I guess, to begin with, and then you know people are convinced that it works. So on the podcast, he claimed that Fadogia agrestis increases testosterone by approximately 300 to 400 nanograms deciliter which is a bold claim Um, and now here's the thing that I recommend to people whenever you hear about an herb or supplement that's being used for whatever reason whether it's testosterone boosting or otherwise you got to look at the literature now even though you're not a scientist you can use uh, scientific websites that do a good job of reviewing the literature the one that I really like is examine.com the staff there looks at all the studies and then they cumulatively you know almost like doing a review paper or a meta-analysis, more like a systemic review, I should say, uh, come up with a conclusion. And I'll I'll literally read what examine.com says. Fidogia agrestis is a Nigerian shrub that has traditional usage as a a pro-erectile agent. It currently lacks human studies, but appears to have aphrodisiac and erectile properties in rats. Possible toxicity needs to be investigated more. So first of all, again, same problem as Tongkat Ali almost all the studies are done in rats which don't translate well to humans there are no human studies that i was able to find um and so it's not very convincing uh in terms of the effects i don't know where this 300 to 400 nanogram per deciliter claim comes from uh maybe it's from you know he he mentioned some like special ops or military person that might have taken it and got a 500 point increase and he said that was an outlier but who knows what was going on if he's taking something else there um, the other thing that's particularly concerning is there are a lot of rat research studies on uh, Fidogia agrestis that I found that says that it has cellular toxicity effects. And in fact, it may be cytotoxic to the testes. So ironically, you're, you're taking this random Nigerian shrub because it may, and unclear in humans, increase testosterone. At the same time, you may be literally poisoning your balls because of the cytotoxic effects on the testes. Um, it's unclear. It needs to be investigated more. But why would you take a, uh, an herb that has some potential toxicity that's been established in research and we quite frankly don't know uh, if it's how toxic it is in humans. That does not seem like a wise or safe decision. So quite frankly, um, I, look, I'm not, uh, I don't want to criticize Dr. Huberman. Um, I have listened to his other stuff. Um, and I think when it comes to his specialty, which is like you know neurology, he's very credible, um, but I, I think he's completely out of his league when it comes to hormones. Um, and even though he studied it in, in regards to how it affects the brain, he's not a hormone optimization expert. He's not a clinician. Um, and quite frankly, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Um, it's unfortunate too, because I think people listen to this. He seems like a very credible guy. He's on Joe Rogan. And then they go and buy Tongkat Ali and Fedogia Agrestis, thinking they're going to get a 100 to 200 point benefit here, 300 to 400 benefit there. They think they're going to see an increase... Cumulative what a 400 to 600 nanograms per deciliter if you just literally add up and do the math uh, It's very unlikely to happen now. I'm not saying that these herbs don't work There is a possibility that they work There's some promising rat studies, but I can tell you every single rat study that I thought was promising it never really pans out in humans So if you're gonna test it uh, Feel make sure you get full comprehensive blood work done I would actually check your liver values to make sure in conjunction and consultation with your doctor to make sure that it isn't toxic to the liver. Who knows what these herbs, what the hell is going on? Uh, and second, so let's substantiate whether it actually increases testosterone or not. But I have to tell you, I wouldn't really bother going through the risk of taking something that's potentially toxic to the testes. Second, there isn't a, a lot of human studies, if, if any, in some of these uh, uh, herbs at all. So it's risky and there's not a lot of evidence to substantiate the effects. And then you're gonna spend a bunch of time and money doing lab tests to see if something may potentially work or not. Unless you wanna basically literally be a human a lab rat or guinea pig, uh, it's not really advised, not really recommended. And if you're a maximizer listening to this podcast, uh, I think it's it's terrible, terrible advice. Um, so uh, yes, this week's Weekly Unpopular Opinion is uh, Fagodia, Gresta, and Tonkat Ali, which is recommended by Dr. Human uh, Andrew Huberman on the Joe Rogan Podcast, uh, does not have convincing uh, research evidence in terms of its testosterone bo- boosting effects and may actually have some toxic effects too. So I, I think it is ill-advised to try it out um, uh, because it probably doesn't work. Uh, if it does work, the effects are going to be mild and you're not going to feel it. And then third, you're risking toxicity. So that sounds like a terrible idea uh, to me. Now, there, like I said, there may be some people who, uh, maybe there might be emerging evidence that comes out because people try it, Uh, I'm always like science is always open to being wrong. If there are studies that are being published, maybe in the next few years, we'll find out, uh, that, that it, maybe it is not toxic or not as toxic or what is the toxicity or if it increases testosterone substantially or not. But right now the evidence is very poor. And I, I, quite frankly, I'm a surprise that a scientist and a professor, you know, really, I think, you know, what you do when you have that expertise is you have to critically evaluate studies. And I, I, I don't think he critically evaluates these studies very well. He probably has a grad student that pulls these up and says, hey, you know what these herbs are showing? Uh, You know, a slight boost in testosterone without critically evaluating the research literature. And that's what you'd expect, quite frankly, of a scientist or a professor. And I'm quite frankly disappointed that he's going and telling people that these testosterone boosting supplements work uh, and everyone's convinced on Joe Rogan. It's very sad. And I think it's uh, irresponsible, quite frankly. So Dr. Huberman, if you want to reach out and you want to debate with me on the podcast, I'm, I'm open to hearing it. But uh, I I strongly disagree with your recommendation. Um, I think that's why, um, look, here's the reality. Um, It's not that the pharmaceutical industry is against herbs, but I'll tell you exactly what happens. When there is an herb that is actually effective, the pharmaceutical industry purifies it, finds the effective chemical that's responsible for the effects, um, studies and characterizes it to make sure that it's not toxic, goes through trials, and then gets it approved as a pharmaceutical drug. A great example of that is aspirin. Aspirin is it comes from the bark of a tree. It is, in, in origin, an herbal supplement, right? Native Americans actually used it for its anti-inflammatory uh, and pain-relieving uh, properties. So it's not that it doesn't work, but uh, unless you plan on chewing tree bark uh, like they did, uh, which is unpleasant, uh, you can just take a nicely uh characterized three hundred and twenty five milligrams, baby aspirin. It's been well studied. Like I think they've done studies with four hundred thousand people taking baby aspirin and, you know, the mortality risks of it. Um and that's why it's commonly used today. So it's not that herbs can't work or don't work. It's that if they honestly had pretty substantial effects, people would be making money on it. And quite frankly they don't, right? So that's why I'm pretty skeptical about it. Um and I'm much more bullish quite frankly on uh you know uh, pharmaceutical drugs uh, because pharmaceutical drugs are wer- well characterized. The stuff that we use obviously in the Maximus Protocol has had extensive research studies, and it's not a 15 to 34% increase like we're talking about. It's a 100% increase that you're seeing in free testosterone and also total testosterone. We understand the mechanisms of actions. We understand the side effects, which are minimal and no different than placebo in terms of the adverse effects, and there's no evidence of toxicity of things like in clomiphene. So, Uh, If you're a smart, uh, I would argue, man who wants something that's actually going to be effective and has minimal risk of toxicity and adverse effects, that's why we use what we use in our protocol. And if one day we find that there is an additional herb or supplement that's effective, we'll obviously validate it, whether it's based on scientific literature or quite frankly, our own studies, because we do lab testing as part of our program, and we'll include it in our protocol. But right now, if quite frankly it worked, we would include it in the Maximus Protocol. But I don't think there's enough evidence that Tomcatali or um, the other uh, uh, Fagodia quite frankly works. So we're not gonna add it to the protocol. And I think the, the toxicity risks are too high for us to uh, you know, let you play guinea pig with it. So that's uh, this week's Weekly Unpopular Opinion. Uh, stick to what works and stick to the pharmaceutical side of things if you want something uh, pretty substantial. Uh, But, yeah, taking random herbs uh, for test-boosting, it's going to be a waste of money. Hi, uh, this is Nabs. Hey, Nabs. Uh, uh, Hello, sir. Uh, Along the same lines of uh, testosterone supplementation, I also heard cold therapy may be of benefit. However, uh, I haven't seen anything uh, written down uh, that says um, it actually would have an effect in terms of... um, Actually, uh, stimulating testosterone production or uh, something to that effect. Uh, what would be your opinion on cold therapies? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's kind of funny. Um, just as there's, there's a random herb that pops up and becomes popular, usually because someone like Dr. Huberman goes on a podcast. And you know what ends up happening, by the way? It's popular for like a month while the podcast is hot. Uh, a bunch of people try it. Uh, there's a Reddit thread that's created about it. People don't find benefits, and then they forget about it. That's why Tongkat Ali, like I said, it's been around for a decade; and nobody uses it. Same thing with behavioral things. And I think this is the really trendy thing. The thing that was popular last year was sunning your balls. Uh, a lot of this right-wing bodybuilder community on Twitter claimed that um, you know uh, getting sunlight on your testicles has magical T-boosting properties, and they cited this one study. Uh, as evidence of it, I actually went and found the study because I'm a responsible scientist and I'm like, okay, if there is literature, great. Let me try it. Uh, or let me see it. Um, and it was like done in like, so, like literally a hundred years ago, this study when you, we didn't even have an accurate way of measuring, uh, testosterone. So it was, I was like, okay, this is, this is uh, ridiculous and invalid. And then second, I actually had a client, I've told this story before, I had a client who tried it. He literally uh, walked around around midday when it's like the highest, um, you know, UV levels and sunned his balls, (laughs) so to speak. Measured his testosterone before and after and guess what? Zero effect, zero change. What I think, um, this is my hypothesis, I do think if you're deficient in vitamin D, uh, getting some sunlight anywhere on your skin that boosts your vitamin D levels into the normal range, may improve your testosterone, at least up to the baseline where you should have been if you weren't a pasty, pale person who's vitamin D deficient. If you're getting enough sunlight, uh, you know, it's unclear that vitamin D supplementation above and beyond the normal range is going to significantly boost testosterone. I don't know, it may or may not, the research evidence is mixed, quite frankly. I've looked at that as well. Um, but yeah, the whole so I make fun of the sunning the balls thing. I, I there's no evidence that, that works. So the subsequent, the, the, the sequel to that is now this icing your balls, uh, or cold therapy, as you put it. Um, there's a guy, I think his name is Lucas Arun. He's like, a, I don't know what he's a naturopathic doctor. He has a, a website, um, and, uh, called Ergogenic Health. I actually like Lucas. I, I think he does a good job of actually like looking into the research literature. Um, and he started a Facebook group about icing your balls. Um, and he claims that it increases testosterone significantly. Now, unfortunately there is no research evidence that I know of that substantiates any of these claims. Um, I would like to see someone post blood work, right? I, like I said, if, if it doesn't exist, I'm not saying that it can't work, but I need evidence and data to prove it. Um, so I, I need to go trawl this Facebook group and see if anyone's done pre and post blood work to see if it increases testosterone uh, and make sure there's no confounding variables. The problem, by the way, whenever I see someone post their blood work and they're testing something like cold therapy, They're also like introduced like three new supplements, Uh, their stress levels have changed and you're like, wait, what is contributing to this change? You changed your whole lifestyle. Is it because of cold therapy or because, you know, you kicked your girlfriend out of bed and now you can sleep, uh, you know, properly. So that's the problem when people do amateur research. They're not tightly controlling it like a scientist would. Um, So unfortunately, I don't think there's any evidence to support the notion of cold therapy. Now here's, let's talk about the premise of cold therapy. The the reason that your testicles literally hang outside of your body is that your core body temperature tries to regulate itself at somewhere around 98.6 degrees. That's what people think. Although the research literature shows that the core body temperature, I think that was established like a century ago, is actually closer to like one degree lower. It's probably like 97.6 or about 98 maybe. Um, But anyway, the testicles, which is because there's literally a a testicular sac that hangs outside the body keeps your your testicles about one to two degrees lower, I believe, than your core body temperature. And that helps make sure that uh, sperm production is optimal. So the one thing I think you can do that may be substantiated is don't wear super tight fitting underwear that like pushes your testicles close to your core because that will heat them up uh, and it's not gonna be optimal for fertility and sperm production. I do recommend uh, guys wear, um, for instance, boxers or boxer briefs. If you do have boxer briefs, there's even ones now that have like a little extra pouch that uh, kind of like let your let your balls hang free, so to speak, uh, and it keeps the testicles away from the body, which is where they should be. You should also not wear like super tight fitting pants because even if you wear, uh, you know, good boxers or boxer briefs, if you're wearing like skinny skinny jeans, it's gonna still press it against your body, right? So ideally you want, um, at least in the crotch area, a little bit looser, looser fitting pants. Um, and you want to wear underwear that keeps your testicles cool. Uh, I think that, is there evidence around this? Mm, unclear, but I, I, I do think there's some clinical evidence from fertility doctors that shows that, um, you know, uh, excessively heating the testicles through skinny pants or, um, Guys who are like excessively ride um, bicycles, um, you know, from the pressure that it puts on the perineum often develop erectile issues. So you want to be careful about stuff like that. Um, so uh, I think that the main thing is like, don't let your balls overheat. Now does cooling them down help? It's unclear, like I said. But here's what I, I would say suggest in terms of my best guess or hypothesis. Um, the body wants to maintain homeostasis, right? Your body doesn't want to get too hot, uh, except in the instance of like let's say the body's inducing a fever to fight a virus, right? But even then fevers can be very dangerous, right? Like once your body temperature starts getting over like 102, you know it's like four or five degrees higher than it should be. Uh, you know there, there's some potential uh, serious adverse effects. And then same thing if your your core body temperature drops, uh, let's say uh, five degrees the wrong way down, you can get hypothermia, right? And so I, if that's what happens to the body, it's probably what happens to the balls as well. Just as you don't want the balls to get too hot, you don't want them to get too cold either. You might get literally hype, you know, like frostbite. And so that's my concern. Um, the Facebook group, I think there is um, a, a product that they sell called Snowballs. It's like literally um, boxer briefs where you can put these little ice packs in there um, but I have to, I have to say, I think it's a bad idea, uh, just because if you overdo it, right. And you, you chill the balls too much. Like I said, you might get frostbite and getting frostbite on your testicles sounds like a terrible idea because you don't want to damage your testes, which may permanently affect your fertility. Doesn't sound like a great idea. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, we, we do have anecdotal evidence, you know, a lot of people obviously ice injuries, right? Like you sprain your wrist, you sprain ankle, you ice it. But they always they always tell people don't apply ice directly uh, to the area because it can damage the skin, uh, and if you leave it on too much, it can even damage the underlying tissue, right? So I would say if you're going to experiment with it, which I do not recommend in the first place, because like I said there's there's no evidence behind it, uh, be very careful because if you over chill it, you might damage and the, the you know the skin and the testicles are very sensitive. This is not a thick area like putting an ice pack on your quads where. You know, you're probably not gonna get uh frostbite uh very quickly. At least you'll notice and it'll hurt. But the testes, you know, it's very, very thin. Um, and so putting an ice pack on your balls to me does not sound like a great idea. Uh and it sounds very risky. So I would say caveat mTOR, buyer beware, um, and do it very I don't know if you're gonna do it. Do, like I would be very careful not to chill your balls too much. Like Um, It doesn't take that much to see a lot of the effects. And I'll I'll give you another interesting precedent. There was another professor at Stanford who developed this very interesting technology where he realized that the palms of your hands and feet almost act as a cooling mechanism. It allows heat to escape just like the top of our scalp. And so what he he did, though, um, is he created this vacuum sealed device where you can put your hand in it and it creates a vacuum around it. And the, the purpose of the vacuum is it prevents vasoconstriction. So, when you put uh, an ice pack or cold water on your hand, uh, the body tries to prevent damage from happening. And so, what happens is your capillaries, right, these little miniature blood vessels, constrict uh, and it, it shuts off blood flow, right? Um, so, uh, if, you, if you put a vacuum, it prevents the vasoconstriction from happening. And what you can do is you can run essentially cool water over your hand and literally cool your body temperature down. What he found by doing that is that people can, um, one of the reasons that people get exhausted from exercise, like let's say you do a set of 10 pull-ups, right? It's not actually lactic acid buildup that's the rate limiting factor. It's actually your body overheating. And so what they do is they get people to do uh, 10 reps of pull-ups, chill uh, their hands using this device which lowers their core body temperature and it gives them enough energy to do another set, another set. So this guy who was like the research assistant in the Stanford lab, like was able to do hundreds of pull-ups uh, or even like thousands of push-ups by doing them in between sets. Um, and I believe a couple of the professional sports teams use, use this technology. Um, but the reason I, I mention it is because they found that you don't need to use an ice pack. All they had to do was run a uh, water over people's hands that I believe were in the 70 degrees range. I, I from my recollection is about 77 degrees. Right, so it's cooler than the body, which is at 97, 98 degrees, about 20 degrees cooler. But uh, you know, 77 degree water is like not cold, it's like lukewarm at best. Um, but they found that if you put an ice pack, it, it creates too much vasoconstriction and instead of cooling your body down, you know, your, your, your blood vessels just shunt and, and you don't get that like uh, cooling effect uh, like you, you, you do in your car where, you know, the coolant is circulating around the engine. So the reason I share that anecdote is, um, you know, honestly, it may be just like like cool water on the balls. I would guess would have a, a better effect than icing them or using cold therapy, and has a much lower risk of causing frostbite or any other issues uh, than an ice pack, which you just can't apply the ice ice to your skin very long, any part of your skin, much less your testicles. So uh, that's my best guess, you know, based on like kind of an analogous kind of treatment protocol, is I think you probably just want to keep the balls cool and aerated. Oh, by the way, one tip on this that I do think actually is helpful is I do suggest, guys, uh, when you go to sleep, uh, either sleep naked or sleep with boxers so that you know during the day, you may want to use boxer briefs or other things just because you don't want it flopping around, so to speak. But at night, because you're spending at least a third of your life in bed, um, I do think it's nice to kind of keep, let the balls kind of, uh, be a little bit cooler. So let them like, just, just use, uh, either sleep naked or just use boxers. Uh, silk boxers are particularly great. I highly recommend them cause, uh, they're naturally antibacterial and obviously feel very nice and soft against your skin. I sleep in silk boxers for that reason. Um, and, uh, yeah, keeps, keeps the boys cool, so to speak. So I think that's enough. Quite frankly, I don't think you need to do any crazy cold therapy. But hey, man, if you if you're willing to do it and experiment, do it at your own risk. Uh, uh, do some blood work before and after to see if it has any effects, and and let me know. I'm I'm as a scientist, I'm always uh, open to being convinced, but I need I need some data to to, to be convinced.
1: Thank you, doctor.
0: Absolutely, good question. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting uh, question, and I, I wanted to get to it eventually, so I'm glad someone asked. Okay, we
1: had a question from Discord last week. Mm -hmm. I've read that high levels of testosterone lead to decreased communication skills as well as lower rates of monogamy and long-term marriage. Is this a valid concern? If so, how would you weigh this when deciding whether to do the Maximus program?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So the question is um, uh, potential research studies on testosterone and uh what was it fidelity and what were the other factors communication Communication.
1: skills long-term marriage monogamy
0: yeah um so first of all the the um the studies that this person's referring to are almost certainly associational studies meaning if you go out and look at the entire population and then you look at their testosterone levels uh you know look at the distribution of them and then you look at their behavior you might find some associations, right? Or correlations. So for instance, it may be, I haven't looked at this firsthand, but what this person's referring to is saying, maybe it lowers like people who are higher in testosterone have lower communication abilities, or people who are higher in testosterone have uh, shorter marriages or more infidelity. That may be true. Let's suppose it is true, but it's associational. Like we don't know it's that, it's that the higher testosterone is causing that, right? There may be a, a correlation is not causation, as we say. There may be a confounding third-party variable. I'll give you a plausible example. Uh, people who are higher in testosterone are often also more successful and they make more money. Now, uh, if they have higher rates of divorce or infidelity, is it because of the testosterone or is it because they have higher status, they have more options to cheat, quite frankly, uh, and then they take advantage of that? Unknown, right? That's the problem with associational research. Now, so uh, I, I don't find it particularly convincing. Now, if you did interventional research or experimental research, where let's say you randomly give one group of people um, a testosterone, significantly testosterone-enhancing treatment, and then you compare them to a placebo, and then you see some differences, that I would find convincing. I have not seen any literature that shows that, that um, a testosterone-enhancing treatment changes communication in any negative way. In fact... I would uh, argue that um, there's, I believe, a study, in fact, on TRT that showed that um, it increases, it decreases nervousness, right? And in fact, in the Maximus Protocol, we're not using TRT, but we're using, um, you know, uh, uh, non-suppressive agents, uh, we find uh, a decreases in anxiety and worry, right? So generally, when people are, have lower anxiety and worry... They are more effective public speakers because then you know they're not nervous, they're not having nervous ticks or habits, and they're able to speak more confidently. So um, I have not seen any decrease in communication, and in fact, the mood benefiting um, elements of or effects of test uh, testosterone optimization, I would guess or hypothesize at least would actually probably enhance communication. Now the other aspect, which is like, is it gonna uh, you know, makes you make you, your, your libido uh, and sex drive so high that you're gonna go and, and cheat. That's up to you. Now, there is some libido enhancing effects to increasing your testosterone, right? Um, we've seen an increase um, from self-reported libido in the Maximus protocol. It's a boost. Right? But you know, it's not gonna take you from being like a mild man to a wild man. And <laughs> like like it's not a night and day difference where you become like a sex crave lunatic, right. I think that's the, the the association people have. I've only seen that like if someone's taking like superhero or or you know amounts of TRT or anabolic steroids. Um, but if you're staying within, The normal range, especially amongst healthy young men of testosterone, which we obviously clinically and responsibly do under doctor supervision at Maximus, um, you know, you'll get optimal libido. So think about it like this. Try to remember what your libido was like at like 18 or 21, right? Um, Was it higher probably than if you're in your 30s or 40s? Probably, although it depends on how well you take care of yourself and other factors. Um, but I don't think most people, even though they're very hormonal as teenagers or, uh, you know, sex crave lunatics, uh, even in college, um, nor, were, nor, did, nor, nor was the fact that they have a young person's hormones making them or forcing them to cheat. There's, you know, in fact, I just had someone on my podcast who talked about meeting his wife in college at 18, right? I think he was 19. She was 18. They got married. They had twins within a year uh, and they've been together ever since. So, you know, just because they met during their optimal hormone years did not mean they're going around sleeping with everyone. They're, I guess, you know, they're both Christian and, you know, uh, I, I I presume on the basis of their faith, fidelity, uh, was important to them. So don't underestimate like psychology and beliefs. Like I actually, if you, if you, if you told me what's a better predictor of infidelity, like your, your spiritual faith or your testosterone levels, I would pick spiritual faith any day because someone who's actually religious, um, and, and, you know, uh, holds the covenant and their vows very seriously and divorce is not an option as our podcast guest, Um, you know, Josh said, uh, he's probably going to have a very strong motivation not to cheat. So it doesn't matter what his hormones levels are. I think he's probably going to do a good job. Now he's human like anyone else, but that's gonna be a better predictor. So no, I, I wouldn't worry about it that at all. Like, here's the thing. If you're gonna cheat, you're gonna cheat. If you're not gonna cheat, you're not gonna cheat. And uh, just by boosting your your libido, uh, I don't think it'll necessarily make someone do something they would not otherwise do. I don't think there's any evidence to support that. Um, and like I said, I don't think the effect is so drastic that it's gonna make a night and day uh, difference that would, that would lead to very unscrupulous behavior. So I wouldn't be concerned about that. One final note that I'll leave you is, you know, if you if you go back to like the origins of psychology, which is Sigmund Freud, he had a very interesting theory about how the libido is king, and what I mean by that is that um, the a man's libido is kind of the, his source of energy, right? If you, if you believe the old, like, um, you know, biblical stories of Samson and Delilah, right? And that story, Samson had long hair and that was the source of his superpowers. I actually think there's a, there's an analogous thing. I think the source of your superpowers as a man is your libido and your fertility actually, right? And so even if you're not trying to have a lot of sex or produce a lot of children, there's something about the virile man, right? Virility, right? Comes from the ability to reproduce. And so if you have a strong libido and high sperm count and sperm quality, you are a virile man. And I, that, I, that's actually what I would argue is like the, you know, as close to whatever conception of alpha male as possible, right? It's someone who's highly desired by women uh, and has the opportunity to reproduce with them, quite frankly. Now that doesn't mean that you should, right? Because, as I said, there may be beliefs that you hold about fidelity or monogamy or etc. that prevent you from doing that. But my point is, virility is a superpower, um, and not just for the for reproductive purposes. But Freud believed that the channeling or the sublimation of the libido is essentially created everything that you see around you, right? These buildings that were built, the Eiffel Tower, the Taj Mahal. Like the Taj Mahal, by the way, was was uh, created by uh, I believe a, like an emperor or king as a testament to his late wife, right? Out of his love for her. And this this majestic palace was built by like thousands of craftsmen, you know, who were probably trying to make a buck and feed their families, you know? And so uh, I think the hallmark of a mature man is uh, channeling your high libido in a positive, pro-social, and productive way, right? It doesn't mean you're gonna go and fornicate all the time. It means you're gonna take that energy and create great art, you're gonna do great work. You're gonna build something meaningful. You're gonna channel into building a healthy, robust family and an intergenerational dynasty. Uh, you know, I talked about, I think, on a little, uh, previous podcast about you know uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo uh, and his two brothers, three brothers, all have NBA championship rings. I'm like, what a what a great role model in terms of building a family dynasty. That is right. So uh, that's the way that I would sort of think about it. Is libido is not a bad thing. You can choose to uh, channel it into cheating if you're an immature man, but I would argue a mature man channels it positively, pro-socially, and productively into building great work. He channels it into his life's mission. And so I think the underestimated uh, kind of effects of increasing and optimizing your testosterone is is not the sex stuff. I know guys are really attracted to it because they want hard erections and they want good sex. I get it. It's great. I you know everyone enjoys it. Every guy enjoys that too. Go have your fun. But it's not the purpose of life. I don't think the purpose of life is hedonism. And we know that because drug addicts. If you if you think the purpose of life is hedonism, you should do heroin. I don't recommend it. But basically, that's the most pleasurable thing that probably exists. If you ever talk to a heroin user. You know, it's described as being a thousand times more enjoyable than an orgasm, in fact, right? Because that's hitting your sweet virgin opioid receptors on your brain. We're probably never the same after the first high, if you ever watch a movie like Requiem for a Dream. But it's obviously a shitty way to live and the whole point of that movie was to show the incredible downsides of being a drug addict. So hedonism is not a great way to live, but rather channeling the libido for, for creating uh, great things, for pursuing your mission, I think is the best use of that energy, and so I would say, yeah, that's up to you. Take your take your newfound libido and, and channel it energy uh, uh, well. And that's also why, obviously, we do this psychological work, right? We don't just shill. We're not a pill mill shilling pharmacology. I always tell people, if we double people's testosterone and they go act like douchebags, we haven't done any good to the world uh, at Maximus. So we we do obviously optimize people's testosterones, but we teach men how to channel it positively pro socially and productively by, by these podcasts, right. By these radio shows, by the content that we put out by having 1200 people on a discord. So when people are getting, you know, dating and relationship advice, uh, you know, we can, we can steer and guide them, um, in the right way. We actually have a channel on our discord right now on dating. Uh, we know provide people with advice, um, and so that yeah that's that's my advice and recommendation is is don't worry about uh getting out of control sexually uh uh, optimize your libido optimize your fertility by optimizing your testosterone and learn to channel and sublimate it uh in a healthy way and then if you do that will be a superpower that most men are still working on
1: we actually had a question come in from youtube that's kind of the same topic Do you think it's bad to be with a girl that has an OnlyFans account?
0: (laughs) All right. Thanks for the question. Um, You know, uh, funnily, one of my most popular slash viral tweets um, is a a video clip of a a female college student at Arizona State University, I believe, ASU, going around and interviewing uh, people. And she interviews a guy. And... um, she asked him, would you date a girl that has an OnlyFans? And he says, no, immediately. And she says, well, why not? And he says, well, if she has an OnlyFans, then that means she belongs to the streets. <laughs> and so, you know, it's obviously a reference if you uh, follow a uh, uh, future um, uh, to video viral video clip of him uh, talking about that. Um, and it, yeah, obviously that kind of went viral if I posted it. So I mean, look, here's the thing. Um, uh, Only fans is basically monetized pornography, right? So you're dating uh, a porn star, essentially, uh, or a porn actress, if you will. Um, it's essentially sex work, right? Now, it's, it's not sex work in the sense of physical touch. Uh, I don't believe in uh, necessarily shaming or stigmatizing sex work. Um, yeah, but you know, um, I don't think anyone aspires quite frankly for their daughter to be a sex worker. I I think that's not an uncommon or unpopular opinion at the same time. Um, so here's the thing. Um, I actually think prostitution should be legalized. Um, it is in certain places like Nevada, because here's the thing, it's the world's oldest profession and it's going to happen anyway. So I think it's better to regulate it tax it and make sure that the sex workers are getting regular SCI testing so that they're not infecting people and that that we're regulating their health. They're not being controlled by pimps. They're not being taken advantage of. Um, And so even though we don't necessarily want to encourage it in society, if it's going to happen, I believe in harm reduction, right? That's my view on drugs too. I believe in drug legalization, not because I think drugs are good. I think most recreational drugs are not good for your health, but if people are going to do it anyway, it's better to take stuff that's pharmaceutically pure than some, some adulterated you know, heroin that was made in a bathtub and is going to kill you because it's laced with fentanyl, which is what we're seeing all the time that's happening. So, uh, all right, getting back on the topic of OnlyFans, um, you know, it's the same thing. You, you know, uh, do you think it's bad to be with a girl that has an OnlyFans? It depends on you and what your values are. That's what I would say. If you don't mind being with a sex worker, because that's essentially what it is, um, uh, then feel free. But I think I will tell you a lot of men would have a problem with that. If you're talking about uh, long-term committed relationship. If you're talking about dating someone and you wanna go have fun, um, that's up to you and your values, right? Um, but I, I think there's a lot of men who would date a porn star or sleep with a, with a porn star, but would not marry and have children with them. Uh, because I think there's this very, think about this. Um, the moment someone has an OnlyFans, uh, their naked body pictures and videos are basically on the internet forever. Someone's downloading that, you can't control it, they'll screenshot it. Um, and so eventually, one day, if you decide to marry and have children with that, Literally, your guy friends will have pornographic pictures and videos of your wife. Uh, your, your their children will have access to that, and they will probably be bullied about it because someone's gonna find that one day, um, and uh, you know, embarrass uh, you know your wife or their mom or whatever it is. Um, and do you want to take that risk? Um, that's up to you and your values. Uh, but I think most men would probably say not. So, um, I, you know, I think ideally you want a woman that's, um, uh, you know, dedicated to uh, having a healthy sense of sexuality. And I don't think selling it is quite frankly healthy for men or women. I don't, I don't think this is a sex, uh, a gendered thing at all, uh, or sex stereotype thing, um, whether it's a, a man or a woman, um. I think if you're a sex worker or, or, or uh, you know pornographer, um, it, your significant other is likely gonna have a hard time with that. And why would you do that to yourself unless you absolutely need to? Because you're significantly lowering your odds on the dating market. So um, uh, essentially you are taking uh, what 90% of people would not take um, in terms of a long-term committed relationship. So I would ask yourself, why are you compromising? Because they're hot, that's probably the most likely reason. Um, but, uh, I, I don't think anyone would in their, uh, you know, most people wouldn't commit to something like that. So, uh, as Chris Rock said, you know, your, your job in life as a father is to keep your daughter off the pole. I, I, I think the modern version of that is to keep your son off of only fans and pornography and keep your daughter off of it as well, in terms of being a model. Uh, cause I just don't think it's really good For them and their future prospects in terms of having a successful long-term relationship.
1: What are your thoughts on the dark
0: triad? Yeah, so for folks who are not familiar, the dark triad is a um, concept in psychology that is about three traits, which are um, narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. If you're really interested in this topic, I have a whole series on it. Um, it's, it's part two of my series on your company cultures who you hire, fire and promote. Um, and uh, I believe the, the article name, if you Google my name, it's um, anatomy of an asshole or anatomy of a workplace jerk. I think we try to make a PG version of it. And I, I talk about um, the characterization of the dark triad. I think it's a useful, um, I think it's a useful thing to assess. In fact, in my clinical practice, I use a scale Uh, to assess the dark triad in my clients because I think it's useful to know who you're working with. And if they're very high in dark triad characteristics, it's going to probably get in the way of their functioning, especially when it comes to their interpersonal functioning. If someone's very high in dark triad traits, in some ways it can make them attractive. I do think actually women are attracted to dark triad um, characteristics. Um, It's because the confidence, for instance, that's correlated with narcissism. Can be attractive, um, uh, you know. Psychopaths can be superficially charming, at least at first. Uh, and people who are Machiavellian um, can be driven to get what they want. Right, the means justify the ends. That's the definition of Machiavellianism, uh, and they often do very well. And women are obviously attracted to status and power. So um, those traits can initially, I would say, attract women, or at least in moderation. But if they're extreme ends, like an extreme narcissist, like you think about a Donald Trump. I don't think most women are super attracted to someone like him uh, because of his personality, at least. Um, and then uh, same thing with, um, you know, uh, psychopathy. The charm is superficial. And then you realize that you're with a cold, non-feeling person who, who lacks any um, affective empathy or sympathy, essentially, no sympathy for you. Uh, it's not going to be super attractive in a relationship. So, Uh, I, that's why it usually, if it's in extreme forms, like if you're talking about narcissistic personality disorder or a true, um, psychopathy, right. Uh, which is antisocial personality disorder that would meet the qualifications for a DSM diagnosable mental health issue that often results in significant problems. So, um, I think you are who you are. Uh, people don't really change their personality traits. I don't encourage people to try to like become more dark triad in order to increase their attractiveness. You don't need to do that. What you need to do is just increase the part of it that women are attracted to, which is putting your mission first, being a confident man, uh, being charming. But you don't need to be dark triad to be any of those things. You just need to focus on that, focus on the root elements of attraction. So that's what I would say if you're talking about in terms of interpersonal context the other part of it is if you're excessive in these things, like you're noticing these things about yourself, if you're curious, by the way, you can take something, If you uh, you can take a little test. It's called the dark triad short form. I'll link to it in the Discord after this conversation. And it'll tell you what percentile you are on each of these three uh, characteristics in terms of the dark triad, the, the narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. If you're very, very high, I would say, I don't know, above 80th percentile, 80th, 90th percentile, um, it's not diagnostic. It doesn't mean you have a personality disorder, but it means that you're exhibiting or self-reporting traits that are associated with dark triad. And I do think like long-term therapy, particularly like long-term psychodynamic kind of therapy, can be helpful um, in resolving or remediating some of those personality traits. Um, and that they're not necessarily pathological. It's kind of like the libido thing that I was talking about earlier. High libido does not mean you're a cheater. High libido uh, means you you may be a very creative artist, but it depends on where you channel it. Are you going to channel it into infidelity? You're going to channel it into great art. That's up to you. I think it's the same thing, actually, with dark triad characteristics. Um, uh, you may have the tendency for narcissism, but you can channel that in a positive way. Like, for instance, I find there's a whole high correlation between narcissists and people who really want to be influencers, Right, I actually know some very famous ones who have millions of followers and they're definitely narcissistic. But uh, they're also very intelligent and they are some of them. Um, It depends. If you're like a girl who's just like showing booty pics on Instagram to get followers and sell fit tea, great. You're probably a narcissist and God bless you for monetizing um, your assets, pun intended. But I, I know other influencers who are a little narcissistic. They like being in front of the camera. I actually do not. Uh, I do it because I think it's important to get a good message out there. Um, but they, they also actually use it for social good as well, right? Like they give away money. They do some philanthropy. They educate people about entrepreneurship. Um, and even though I would argue they have some narcissistic qualities, uh, I think that, that some of them do do provide some positive benefit. So you can channel it just like your libido in a way that's positive, pro-social, and productive as long as you are able to rein it in a little bit, especially in the context of close relationships. You may make a great influencer or celebrity as a narcissist, but you're not going to make a very good boyfriend or husband unless you learn to keep it under control and maybe turn it off, quite frankly, a little bit when you get home. So, you know, I, I always describe personality as predispositions, not destiny. Meaning that even if, let's say, you are high on narcissism by taking the Dark Triads scale, it does—it means your tendency to do narcissistic behavior is going to be higher than most people. But it doesn't guarantee that you will. And so, I—I I think that's really important and empowering that you have an internal locus of control. Your personality does not dictate; it's not—you're not a puppet on strings. You can still have control or choice over your life. And so, if you know that about yourself, you can go get therapy. You can work on it. And you can practice in the context of your close personal relationship where narcissism certainly like rubs people the wrong way and pushes people away. You can be, learn to be less narcissistic and more giving right to them and less self-centered and more oriented towards the other. It's quite possible. I actually do know some people who probably their tendency is to be narcissistic, but they're good and loving partners because they choose to be. right. And that's the thing that I always want to emphasize um, to all of our listeners out there is you, you can choose who you want to be, right? And what I mean by that is not who you say you're gonna be, you choose it by acting a certain way, right? So if you wanna be high integrity uh, person, uh, then don't act unfaithful, right? Uh, at least if you're in a com- committed monogamous relationship and you're honoring the promise or vow that you made to your girlfriend or your wife, right? So uh, that's, that's critical um, and it's the same thing. Like you can channel, uh, whether it's libido or narcissism, in a way that's aligned with your personal values. Um, it takes training, it takes effort. Sometimes, like I said, it takes therapy, but it is absolutely possible. And so you can make the choice of how do you utilize it? Are you gonna use it as an evil power, right? And become an evil doer, so to speak? Or, or are you gonna use the force, so to speak, for good uh, and channel it in a positive way if you're a Star Wars fan? So uh, that's my take on it. Have a wonderful week. I will catch you next Thursday at six o'clock. Uh, Feel free to continue the conversation on Discord. um, And otherwise, uh, I will talk to you next week.